0: You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello, out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanok Teller. Hajamin El Husseini has a rap sheet for instigating pogroms and being responsible for the wholesale murder of innocent Jewish lives, like few others in history. In the following episodes of Teller from Jerusalem, wish to afford him some of the ignominious credit that he deserves. Prior to the arrival of a delegation of Americans commissioned by President Wilson to sound out Arab public opinion in the Middle East, Al Husseini toured villages and towns in order to mobilize violent demonstrations. In 1921, shortly after the arrival of Herbert Samuel, whom we have discussed, when Herbert Samuel came to Palestine, the position of the Mufti became vacant. The powerful and wealthy Husseini family that were landowners in the leadership of Arab Nationalist Camp had provided 13 mayors of Jerusalem between 1864 and 1920. One of the Husseini mayors was dismissed by the British for his role in the Nebi Musa riots. These riots, known as the Nebi Musa riots, happened on the Muslim holiday called Nebi Musa. Because of the holiday, the mosques were at their fullest capacity, and a cleric can incite them And the metaphor that comes to mind is gas and alcohol. The mob began to shout, Palestine is our land. The Jews are our dogs. Arab police joined in applause and violence started. The local Arab population ransacked the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem. The Torah's Chaim Yeshiva was raided. Torah scrolls were torn and thrown on the floor. And the building was set alight. Five Jews were murdered and several hundred were injured. As disturbances grew worse, The old city was sealed off by the army, the British army, and no one was allowed to exit the area. Martial law was declared, but looting, burglary, rape, and murder continued. Several homes were set on fire, and tombstones were shattered. British soldiers found that the majority of illicit weapons were concealed on the bodies of Arab women. With robust backing, Husseini rose to become the first global Grand Mufti. As we've already explained, the Mufti is a religious and legal authority who hands down rulings on everyday issues to believers in his jurisdiction. Al-Husseini's late half-brother, Kamil, was the previous Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. Al-Husseini received the title in 1921, and in order to preserve and expand his trans-regional Mid-East Europe legacy after 1945, he chose as his representatives Saeed Ramadan for Europe and Yasser Arafat in the Middle East the Mufti advised Arafat in 1968 to take over the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, which he headed until 2004, and to, quote, liberate Palestine, operating out of Gaza with Fatah troops. As we turn to another one of Husseini's exploits, known as the Farhud, this will sound reminiscent of the Kishna pogrom and the bloodbaths Russian Jewry experienced at the end of the 19th century. The Jewish community in Iraq is one of the oldest communities in Jewish history, It dates back 2,500 years. It produced the Babylonian Talmud and was the spiritual center for Jews from around the world. From Baghdad to Basra, Jewish communities flourished, generations were raised, synagogues thrived, and business prospered. The Jewish community in Iraq was one of the forefront of Iraqi progress to modernity, and their achievements were countless. So try and put some bullet points in your mind as I list some of their accomplishments. Iraq's first finance minister was a Jew. He created the foundations of its modern economy. Iraq's first national orchestra was led by a Jewish conductor. The thriving music scene in Iraq in the 1920s and 30s led to the rise of modern Iraqi music. To my very unrefined and uncultured ears, untutored ears, I should say, it all sounds the same to me. The first modern novel written and published in Iraq was written by a Jew. Jews have always been part and parcel of Iraq's culture, language, and history. The outbreak of mob violence against Baghdad Jewry, known as the Farhud, Farhud is Arabic term best translated as pogrom or perhaps violent dispossession, erupted on June 1, 1941. It was a turning point in the history of the Jews in Iraq. What you're about to hear is selected from a documentary by Jordan Salama. June 1st, 1941, marked the beginning of the hostilities between the Jews and Arab Muslims in Iraq. Interrupting over 2,500 years of peaceful coexistence, the Farhud was a Nazi-supported pogrom in which hundreds of Jews were killed in Baghdad over the span of two days. Afterwards, relationships between Jews and Arabs in the country continued to deteriorate. In the 1940s, about 135,000 Jews lived in Iraq, nearly 3% of the total population. About 90,000 of them lived in Baghdad, 10,000 in Basra, and the remainder were scattered throughout many small villages and towns throughout the country. Jewish communities had existed in this region since the 6th century BCE, hundreds of years before Muslim communities established in presence in Iraq during the 7th century. The Jews shared the Arab culture with their Muslim and Christian neighbors, but they lived in separate communities. Jewish assimilation into Muslim society was very rare. With the establishment of the Iraqi state under the British mandate in 1921, Jews became full-fledged citizens and enjoyed the rights to vote and hold elected office. Jews were elected to the parliament and into the senate. The community's elite included high ranking officials, prominent attorneys, dignitaries, wealthy merchants, and, as we said, members of parliament. In the spring of 1941, Britain was enduring one of its worst periods in World War II. Most of Europe had fallen to the Axis forces, German planes were bombing British cities in the Blitz, and German submarines were exacting a tremendous toll on British shipping. Having driven the British out of Libya, the Africa Corps under General Erwin Rommel was camped along the Egyptian border and poised to to thrust eastward to the Suez Canal, a vitally important British property. The German Wehrmacht, which means their armed forces, had driven the British out of Greece and Crete, eliminating their last beachhead on on the continental Europe. All of this you can hear in this selection from the documentary by Kings and Generals. By April 30th, the last British troops had either escaped or been taken prisoner and hostilities ceased, thus ending the invasion. The British successfully completed the evacuation of about 50,000 soldiers to Crete, but in their hasty retreat, they lost 11,840 men. The loss of Greece was a tough one for the Allies. British chances of winning the war appeared slim. Such catastrophic setbacks severely impacted Britain's presence in the Middle East. Since June 1940, the Vichy government, of course, that's the Nazi government that was erected in Vichy, France, had controlled Syria and Lebanon, and pro-Axis sentiment was prevalent in Egypt's government as well. In this context, Rashid Ali al-Khalini, an anti-British nationalist politician, formed one of the leading families in Baghdad. He carried out a military coup against the British and the pro-British government on April 2, 1941, in Iraq. He was supported by four high-ranking army officers, nicknamed the Golden Square, and also, of course, by former Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini. Since his arrival, that's Husseini's arrival in Baghdad in October 1939, as a refugee from the failed Palestinian revolt, which took place between 1936 and 1939, al-Husseini had been at the forefront of anti-British activity. Following the coup, the supporters of the deposed pro-British rule formed a pro-German government, winning the support of the Iraqi army and administration. The rise of this pro-German government threatened the Jews in Iraq. Nazi influence and anti-Semitism already were widespread in Iraq, due in large part to the Germans legation's presence in Baghdad as well as influential Nazi propaganda, which took the form of Arabic-language radio broadcasts from Berlin. That's exactly where Al-Husseini was delivering his addresses. Mein Kampf had been translated into Arabic and was published in a local newspaper. Concerned that Iraq, as a pro-Axis bridgehead in the Middle East, would inspire other Arab nations and increasingly worried that their access to oil supplies as well as their communications and transportation routes to India were now seriously threatened, the British decided to occupy the country. On April 19, 1941, British army units from India as well as units from Transjordan invaded Iraq. By the end of May, the Iraqi regime collapsed and its leaders fled to German-occupied Europe. Because the British did not wish to appear to be intervening in Iraq's internal affairs, the British refused to enter the cities and as a consequence, there were widespread looting of goods in the shops and bazaars, many of which belonged to the Jews. In Baghdad, the results of this policy were much more severe. On the afternoon of June 1st, 1941, when the British troops surrounded the city, the Jews believed that they could exhale and believe finally resume breathing and that the danger from the pro-Nazi regime had finally passed. They ventured out to celebrate the holiday of Shavuot and riots broke out, targeting the Jews of Baghdad. These riots, known as the Farhud, lasted for two days, ending on June 2nd, 1941. Iraqi soldiers and policemen who were sympathetic to the Axis, meaning the Nazi forces, incited and led the riots. Unlike in previous incidents, rioters for the first time were now focusing on murdering. Many civilians in Baghdad and Bedouins from the city's outskirts joined the rioters, taking part in the violence and helping themselves to a share in the booty. During the two days of violence rioters murdered between 100 and 180 Jews, they injured over 600 others, and raped an undetermined number of women. They also looted some 1,500 stores and homes. The community leaders estimated about 2,500 families, which means 15 percent of the Jewish community in Baghdad, suffered directly from the pogrom. Arab nationalists perceived that the Baghdadi Jews were Zionists, or Zionist sympathizers, and they therefore justified their attacks as a response to the Arab-Jewish conflict in Palestine. Nevertheless, killing helpless Jews, including women and children, was unprecedented in Iraq up until this point. However, the anti-Semitic ideology, derived in part from Nazi propaganda, helped to legitimize murdering Jews in Iraq. Of course, what the Nazis always did was they legitimized that the Jews are Basli vermin, and they are parasites, and therefore it's our own self-defense to eliminate this enemy before, we have to, before they eliminate us. And they didn't call it elimination, they called it extermination. The Jewish community in Baghdad was unarmed and lacking military training and self-defense skills. Baghdad Jews felt vulnerable and helpless. Many decided to leave Iraq. Hundreds fled to Iran. Others went to Lebanon. Some even obtained temporary visas for India. A few hundred tried to reach Palestine, but most of them were forced to stop at some point along the way, either by the Iraqi police, which did not allow Jews to emigrate to Palestine, or by the Palestinian police, enforcing strict immigration quotas, otherwise known as the execrable, execrable White Paper of 1939. The British did not permit Jews to immigrate into Palestine, succumbing and giving in to Arab pressure. Most of the refugees returned to Baghdad when they could, and the political situation calmed down, the economy stabilized a little bit, but, however, there were very, very deep emotional and psychological wounds following the Farhud. Many members of the community remained in a state of profound shock that undermined their sense of security and stability, eventually prompting them to question their place within Baghdad society. Jewish intellectuals in Baghdad had perceived themselves as partners in creating Iraqi culture. Now they felt rejected and betrayed. Jewish leaders were afraid to assert themselves that they might incite a Arab nationalist response. The Jewish intellectuals, their faith in the prospect of Jewish integration in Iraqi society, had suffered a very serious shock. More profound still was the sense of disillusionment among the youth. The Bludge had prompted many of them to reject the cautious policies of the traditional leadership, and they began to respond in a radical fashion. The nationalists among them were attracted to the Zionist movement. The Farhud marked a new era of Muslim-Jewish relations in Iraq, when discrimination and humiliation became further compounded by concerns about a direct physical threat to the Jews' future survival. Among the Arabs, the whole event was, I mean, talking about the Farhud, was repressed and nearly forgotten. Arab writers of the time mentioned the Farhud only vaguely and explained it as a consequence of Zionist activity in the Middle East. In contrast, Iraq's Jews now perceived that the threats of Jewish lives existed not only in Europe, but also in the Middle East. In 1943, because of both the ongoing murder of European Jewry as well as the anti-Semitism in Arab countries, Iraq's Jewish communities were included in Zionist plans for immigration and establishing the Jewish state. By, though, of course, Israel was established, became an independent state in 1948, so the plans are already starting to succor and save Iraqi Jewry in 1943. By 1951, ten years after Tfarhud, most of the Iraqi Jewish community, that's, that means about 124,000 out of 135,000, had immigrated. To the state of Israel. So let's try and summarize. Iraq's Jews found that anti-Semitism were not confined to their European brothers and sisters, but was becoming part of life in their region as well. The rise to power of a pro-Nazi government in Iraq instigated an unprecedented chain of events for the Jewish community of, throughout the country. The connection between the Nazis and al-Husseini underscored absolutely everything. The Farhud was a prelude of things to come. In the years after it, most of the Jewish communities in the Arab states were forced to flee for their homes, flee their homes, and flee for their lives. Millenniums of coexistence would never be the same again. Where once large and vibrant Jewish communities existed, only a handful, remain, a handful of Jews remain today. The thread of more than 2,000 years of rich cultural heritage was abruptly broken. The United Nations has passed more than 100 resolutions on Palestinian refugees. If I'm not mistaken, it may even be hundreds. However, not once have we ever seen any resolution or any recognition of these forgotten Jewish refugees. More than 850,000 Jewish refugees in Arab countries were viciously forced out of their homes, and we should never forget this. It is time that these past wrongs are rectified. Not a single Arab country has taken responsibility for the events of the past, and we're duty-bound to ensure that these stories of the Jewish refugees will not be forgotten ignored. In the aftermath of the Farhud and in the following events, the Iraqi Jews made a hard yet a right decision. They chose not to despair. They chose not to stay focused only on the past, but to direct their efforts towards the future. They chose not to remain in a mire of victimhood, but to invest in building new lives and a new future in the state of Israel. In short, they chose life. Which brings us back to the Mufti. Mufti Hajjamin al-Husseini exercised virtually unlimited rights of patronage and control over the Islamic religious hierarchy of Palestine, over Muslim schools, religious courts, and waqf, that's religious trust funds. He exploited his triple position of religious head, national leader, and senior government official. Mufti Husseini mobilized the loyalties of the Islamic population to his own highly developed personal and nationalist ambitions. So what we can quickly summarize is basically what we've already discussed. The Mufti mobilized the loyalties of the Islamic population to his own highly developed personal and nationalist ambitions. There is no reason to repeat the details of the riots he incited in 1929. We discussed how he incited mobs to riot in Jerusalem and Hebron, but there were also other assaults that were carried out in Haifa, in Jaffa, even in Tel Aviv. Numerous Jewish agricultural villages were similarly attacked. It's really quite remarkable how most believe the Holocaust was confined to Europe, and most are unaware of the suffering and the murder of North African Jewry and Iraqi Jewry. How the Mufti's policy translates to the modern era we'll examine in our upcoming episode, God willing. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode, and be sure to visit telefromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store, and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all teleproducts, Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget. You can get teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform, or go to telefromjusen.com.